Welcome to BioCentury This Week. I'm Jeff Cranmer, Executive Editor of BioCentury, and I'm joined by... Simon Fishburne, Editor-in-Chief. Steve Osden, Washington Editor. Selena Koch, Executive Editor. Lauren Martz, Executive Director of Biopharma Intelligence. On today's pod, Chris Wiebacher's Biogen Strategy. NK cell companies are in the spotlight after a series of disappointments in the clinic and a new company that's leveraging bat biology to improve human health. But first, BioCentury This Week is sponsored by Jato Capital, a global leading private equity company with a patient benefit-driven approach that finances and accelerates the development and growth of groundbreaking medical innovation. JATO empowers and supports managers through its expert, integrated, multi-talented team, and through the investment of significant capital to ensure the growth of companies, building market leaders in their respective therapeutic areas with accelerated patients' access globally. In particular, in Europe and the US, JATO has more than 500 million euros under management and a rapidly growing portfolio of investments. The firm is based in Paris with a presence in Europe and the US. I've also got two quick things for you on the BioCentury front. We have two very cool events coming up. March 30th, we have our webinar on the Inflation Reduction Act. Go to biocenturyira.com to learn more. And of course, as I've mentioned recently, Bioequity Europe is just around the corner. That will be May 14th through 16th in Dublin. Go to bioequityeurope.com to register. Last year sold out, so please don't wait. All right, first up, Chris Wiebacher is back. He took the reins of Biogen in November at a challenging time for the company, just on the heels of the commercial failure of Alzheimer's drug Aduhelm and amid declining revenues. That's on the one hand. On the other hand, uh, they have a couple of new launches on the horizon, including another for Alzheimer's. The former Sanofi CEO sat down with Steve last week to discuss his vision for what's next. For the company, Steve, what did you learn? It was a really interesting interview, even more than usual. I would say that people should just read what I wrote, but here are some of the highlights. He obviously, he took the job to turn things around at Biogen. He said the company's got a high cost base. So one of the first things he's going to do is to make Biogen more efficient. That's not necessarily going to mean trimming staff, though I, I'm sure that's been part of it, but he also said it's going to mean directing staff toward launches for Lecambi and Zeranolone, uh, which is really his and the company's top priority, making those two launches successful. It's very tricky and complex. Lecambi, because of the restrictions on coverage from CMS, it's not clear how CMS is going to cover it. But the other thing he said, there are other, other uncertainties. He said, um, it isn't clear that there's enough capacity in the United States to get a lot of Alzheimer's patients infused, they're going to have to work on that. Zeranolone, it's a new modality for depression. If they do get approved, unlike other depression drugs, it's going to be used short term, about 10 days. That's going to be a challenge in terms of convincing physicians and patients to use it. And presumably the pricing is going to be different because other depression drugs are priced as for chronic use. 
some of the other things that he said, I think that are really noteworthy, were really kind of more philosophical things. One of the things that he said is he banned the use of a net present value as a way to calculate the value of potential acquisitions when he was at Sanofi, and he's trying to stamp it out at Biogen. We can talk about that. I thought it was really interesting. The other thing he talked about that was really interesting was how he brings his experience from decades in the biopharma industry to Biogen, and he made specific references linking things that have happened in his career to things that are happening now. For example, he was at Burroughs Welcome when its drug AZT was approved as the first AIDS treatment. It wasn't as effective as people would have hoped, but it served as proof of concept for accelerated approval based on surrogate endpoints, and it showed that there was a business case for investing in AIDS drug development. As a result, there was a flood of investment in AIDS drugs that turned AIDS from a terrifying pandemic into a manageable disease. He thinks that the situation with Lakembi and Alzheimer's could be similar to that. We talked about the Inflation Reduction Act and how it's going to influence what drugs and what kinds of drugs companies invest in. And he pointed to the precedent for public policy shaping those kind of decisions. He was president of GSK North America when its diabetes drug Avandia came under attack based on a flawed meta-analysis. I remember I interviewed him back in the day about that. And uh, FDA's actions on Avandia, on NSAIDs after Merck withdrew Vioxx and antibiotics based on criticism of its approvals based on non-inferiority standards, all happened around the same time in the, in the early 2000s. And they led industry to shift away from primary care drugs to cancer and rare diseases where there's a clear risk-benefit decision. And he said the IRA could have a similar scale of changes on what the industry invests in. Okay, Steve, before we get to the philosophy, I think that's really interesting. I think it was a really interesting interview. I know that Vibaka is actually out there talking to people. I think this interview really sets apart from what he spoke to most people about. But let's just come back to a couple of the, I love the NPV thing, by the way. I would love not to have any more NPV discussions. So that aside, <laughs> um, oh, I can thank him for that, that alone. He's, he's got a fan in me. He's got a fan in me. But um, aside from that, I actually do want to come back to the Biogen part of this. Now, it's pretty well known that Biogen's board is a board with opinions, shall we say. It's not necessarily a push over this board. There's also been conversations about whether Biogen needs to buy something, whether Biogen might get bought. How much synergy do you think there is and how much backing? Obviously, he's got the board's backing, but you know, I know you asked him the question about his timeline. So What's your opinion of the dynamic between VBAC and this board? I think that it's one of these things where people who know don't say and people who say you shouldn't really pay too much attention because they don't know. Well, you asked him the question, how, what timeline has he given himself, right? Yeah, and it was interesting. He didn't really answer it, okay? I asked him how much time has he given himself, how much time has the board given him? He said that three years is tomorrow when it comes to drug development because of regulatory timelines and things like that. But the other thing that he made clear is he said that he's on the hunt for assets that Biogen could acquire or perhaps develop, and it sounded more like acquire, that would provide quicker answers to questions and presumably quicker paths to commercialization than the big challenges that it's working on now. So he said there are opportunities in rare diseases, in um, neuropsychiatry and in immunology that can build on the strengths that Biogen has, but where they wouldn't be enormous challenges that take what he said, 
phase three like trials in order to determine whether something's going to work or not. So you could interpret that as a certain amount of pressure to add things to the pipeline in a relatively near term. I think that that would be a fair assumption. And, and he also said that managing the uh, launches of uh, Lacambi and Zeranolone are matters of real urgency for him. When it comes to adding things to the pipeline, you did ask him about immunology, which is one area he has stated publicly he's looking for things, right? And it sounded like he was kind of hinting at they're going to leverage their experience in the brain. He said something like Biogen's been in the brain more than any other company and has this big history in MS to look in immunology. So, I mean, were you getting the sense that they're going to look at immunology with respect to the CNS? I didn't, did not get the impression that he would limit it to that. Uh, but what he did say is, he said, well, it's going to be connected with the expertise that Biogen has in autoimmune diseases. He said specifically, he said, you know, don't look for us going into RA. He said, don't look for us doing a complete right turn and going into cardiovascular disease, something like that, or cardiology, I think he said. So I think it would be a reasonable thing to think that they're going to be looking at things that are adjacent to the things that they're doing now, where there are opportunities to have quicker wins. Well, Selena, we've talked and covered this for a while. You certainly have that a lot of the innovation in CNS diseases is centered around neuroinflammation. So is that what you're thinking? That's just what I'm wondering. But I don't know that there's something far enough advanced for if he's looking for something to add near-term growth. The other thing that he talked to, a couple of things that he talked about that were interesting, I actually don't remember if, if I got all of these into the story, but when I asked him about neuropsychiatry, I kind of asked him, I said, well, that doesn't sound like low-hanging fruit. He acknowledged that it's challenging because there aren't a lot of companies that are really trying to do anything there, but he said there's an enormous unmet need, and he said it's possible to determine whether something's going to work much more rapidly than for neurodegenerative diseases. So I think his point wasn't so much that it's going to be that they're going to go after easy things as that they're going to go after things where you can find out whether you've got success more rapidly than for neurodegenerative diseases, unless you've got, you know, good biomarkers, which arguably <laughs> they don't exist. <laughs> well, I, I, will um, say, I, I will say he'll get another vote from me on that in addition to NPV. You know, neuropsychiatry has really been just underinvested and we just know what massive mental health challenges and so on are facing this country and globally. And he did allude to that. And so if they can make inroads in that area, then good for them. And, and that brings up another thing, getting back to the NPV thing, which he talked about. He talked about his experiences that he'd had with Henry Chamir when as the um, CEO of Sanofi, he engineered the acquisition of Genzyme. And he said that one of the things that he took away from, from his conversations with Tremere is the notion that you basically you have to make investments or he believes you have to make investments and decisions based on making a big difference in a disease. And that if you do that, then you can find a way to make a business around it. And he said that that's the philosophy that he wants to pursue rather than starting from some kind of financial calculations and figuring out what you can, can do that'll, that'll work that way. Well, should we talk about um, what's needed to make these launches successful? I mean, we do have now, as of, I think we just got a press release um, about the Biogen Azi Alzheimer's drug, Lakembi, having a June 6th PDUFA date. 
Well, they need they need to get a positive ad comp, and they need to get a conversion to full approval, the standard approval, mm-hmm. and then they're going to need to have CMS come up with a coverage policy that's going to be much broader than what exists now. You know, what are the odds of that, Selena? Yeah, well, I think odds are pretty good that, C- I mean, CMS has said publicly that it's willing to reevaluate the NCD once the first drug in this class has full approval, which is very likely to happen in June. I think the question is, at the end of that reevaluation process, how different does the NCD look from today? How many restrictions remain? They're certainly going to require registries. They're certainly going to require that people get followed really closely. I think the big question is whether how much they're going to loosen up on restrictions, restricting coverage to people who are in certain kinds of trials, especially uh, the kinds of trials that, that they've required for the maps that have received accelerated approval. And then basically that's... Yeah. Um, well, so the NCD as it stands separates drugs that have received accelerated approval from those who have received full approval. So the requirement that you can only get coverage in the context of an RCT, randomized controlled trial, if you have accelerated approval. There's already more wiggle room there. <laughs> you have full approval. You can run registry, prospective registry studies. So I don't know how much that will change, but people certainly do expect, I mean, certainly investors and some of the um, like payer consultants we spoke to over the last six months expect there to be some wider coverage made available once that approval happens. But there are lots of ways that CMS could still say, okay, well, this, you know, not cover to the label to say that, that what's in the label is not meet our requirements for our population. For instance, the label doesn't require patients to have confirmation that they have amyloid plaque in the brain. CMS could decide it wants to have that restriction. They could say people on anticoagulants, this, this drug isn't for them because there is some data suggesting it's much more, the safety concerns are bigger in those people. There's any number of subgroups. There's like APOE4 homozygotes, for instance, we're much more likely to have brain swelling and it looked like from the forest plots in the CTAD presentation that they, they didn't get as much benefit either. So maybe that could be another angle. Anyway, I, we don't know. There's any number of ways that CMS could say, well, we're going to cover this, but not, not necessarily everything that you would think based on the label. All right. Steve, final thought on what you're looking for uh, after talking to uh, Chris? I think it's going to be really fascinating. I, you know, I started the story by saying, you know, he's got a tiger by the tail. And I, I think it's the case. And he said that that one of the reasons that he accepted the job is because people think that Biogen, and because he thinks that Biogen is a kind of special kind of company, that it's different from other biotechs and biopharma companies. And I, and I think he's right. And I think it's going to be really fascinating to see how he how he manages it and whether he's successful and to what extent he's successful, you know, and potentially, of course, really important for patients. Yeah. And the, the quote you had in the story, I like it. He says, what I like about Biogen is that they have been willing to go out further on a limb for the patient than a lot of companies. So clearly that's why he came back. And we will clearly be watching what comes next. Um, One of those things might be a spin out of the biosimilars portfolio that the company has, which is a pretty hefty chunk of the revenues they bring in. So you can read Wiebacher's comments on that and so much more in Steve's story on biocentry.com. 
All right, speaking of challenges, it's been a challenging few months on the NK cell therapy roller coaster. But executives are making the case that setbacks affecting one program don't read through to others. Lauren, confidence in the NK cell modality has a long history of seesawing. What set off this most recent bout of soul searching? Yeah, the, I think the thing that set off the most recent bout is the reorganization that happened at Fate Therapeutics earlier this year. Fate's been widely considered a pioneer in CAR NK cell therapies, you know, a pioneer in these IPSC derived cell therapies. And they've had some good data over the past year or so. And there have also been some concerns about, you know, whether NK cells can have effects that last comparably long with CAR Ts, for example. But earlier this year, we saw Fate drop more than half of their NK cell programs. And I think that was a big hit for this field to see one of the leaders have a setback like that. Yeah, we reported on that. And, you know, then what the sort of reaction was from the others was, well, wait a minute, don't tar us all with the same brush, right? There are not all NK cells are made the same. They come from different origins. And maybe you can walk us through a little bit why the other NK cell developers feel that they are differentiated and the risks that go with FAPE's technology doesn't necessarily apply to theirs. Yeah, so we're starting to see the NK cell field split based on the source cells that are used to create these NK cell therapies. So I mentioned that FAPE is working on iPSC-derived NK cells and that there are plenty of other companies working in that space as well, but there are also companies doing NK cells that are derived from peripheral blood of adults and from cord blood. There are a lot of differences in, in how these cells work, how differentiated they are. And specifically, I think the iPSC derived cells are, are the most different from everything else because here you're taking pluripotent cells and you're trying to differentiate them into a cell type that is similar to a natural NK cell, but they're not actually natural NK cells taken from the body. So I think uh, Paul Hastings at Encarta raised the point that these iPSC-derived NK cells are, are lacking the CD16 receptor that is part of defining what, is, what an NK cell actually is. So a lot of other companies are making the point that these cells work very differently depending on where they come from. Each of these source cells has their own advantages. iPSCs are very consistent. They're coming from, you know, you can make lots and lots of doses from a single source cell. But you don't have the different clones. You're, you have a very homogeneous product. And not only the fact that these cells are not natural NK cells, but the fact that they are not differentiated. You don't have a lot of different types of cells. They're not at different stages of development where they could expand inside the body, for example. All of these things could impact efficacy. And I think the field is that the point where the people are trying to understand what's going to be best and piecing together little bits of clinical data for each of the different ones. So that's what it's going to boil down to, Lauren, because you, you often wonder how much investors, especially in public markets, are able to pass the differences of the source of the cells and how to understand that. So at the end of the day, clinical results, as you said, is, uh, is, is what talks. And how are they stacking up one against the other? Um, what, are you, what are you expecting to see, I guess, this year from that? 
Also, I mentioned we've seen some data from FATE, you know, the CD19 um, product that they had was looking pretty good, but there have been ups and downs in that data. I think one of the most encouraging pieces of data for a car NK cell came from Encarta um, about a year ago. And based on the earliest results from that study, it looked like, you know, these cells might be might potentially lead to comparable efficacy, at least in terms of response rates to, to what CAR T cells are producing. So Encarta's cells come from peripheral blood. And then we've also seen a lot of data for NK cells that do not have a CAR. So companies are trying to compare data from these unmodified NK cells to see what's going to you know, ultimately perform best when you start adding the CAR. But there's not a lot of clinical data for NK cell therapies that have a CAR. And so in terms of looking ahead to the rest of this year, are we going to have opportunities to get more information on these therapies, including the from different sources? I think we'll continue to see data come out for, for several of these programs this year. And, and another level of differentiation that we'll start to understand better um, are the additional modifications that companies are making to these cells. So a lot of companies have an IL-15 that's either secreted or um, membrane bound to help these cells persist better in the body or, or even in culture. Some companies are trying different cytokines to help stimulate activity. Um, and there are a number of different changes that, that other companies are doing. And so some people are working with, with two different targets for the cars, for example. So there, there's this other tension that came out in your story, which is the need to, um, maybe these cells aren't quite as robust as T cells. And so you want to handle them gingerly or do as few modification to them as possible, some people argue. And that's one of the arguments for why they think, okay, iPSC-derived NK cells might not be the best because you have to go through all these steps to turn them into stem cells and then turn them into NK cells. And then on the other side of the spectrum, you have people loading up <laughs> these with cars and cytokines and other things. Um, can you just talk about that tension a little bit and what, what companies are saying? Yeah. So I think the take-home that I got from the interviews I did, I, I spoke with quite a few NK cell companies, is that preclinical studies at least suggest that if you're adding the right modifications, the benefits will outweigh the risks. You know, you are adding a functionality that will increase efficacy more than the damage that it would be doing to the NK cell's ability to persist. But it's all about doing the right modifications and finding the right modifications. And, and there's certainly a limit to how much you can do to a cell to have it still be viable and, and functional in the way that it needs to be. I think there are just a lot of unknowns about which changes are, are going to be most beneficial and, and should be included. All right. Thanks for that, Lauren. Uh, your story, uh, very timely, up on biocentury.com. Here at BioCentury, we're always on the prowl for cool new companies for our Emerging Company Profile series. And Steve, you certainly found one in a company called Paratus. The company is being built around the idea that insights derived from the study of bat biology can be applied directly to human health and health security. The company recently came out of stealth with a $100 million Series A round from a group of blue chip VCs, Steve Bass. Go figure. So I have to say, yeah, this was the coolest company that I've talked to for a, a long time. But the thing that was it's also impressive is what you said is that not only are they, is what they're doing really cool, but they persuaded Polaris and Arch and uh, Bayer and other really savvy investors to give them hundred million dollars to pursue it. The key thing about this company is not 
the idea that bats could be really important model species to learn a lot about things that could be relevant to humans. People have thought of that before. The problem is, is that it's been extreme, extremely difficult to act on that insight. What this company has is a technology to create stem cells from small pieces of bat tissue. Basically, scientists can, can capture bats in the wild and take a little punch out of their wing, then Paratus can use that to create stem cells that they can do all their work with. And it doesn't hurt the bat. The bat flies away and, and is, is fine. And they are using these um, stem cells to really industrialize bat biology as a tool for gaining insights into, into things that could be relevant to humans. Everything from um, the fact that bats carry but um, are not usually severely affected by some of the most virulent uh, viruses that hurt um, humans from SARS-CoV-2 to MERS and to other viruses. The fact that bats don't seem to mount uh, inflammatory responses in, re in response to, to injuries, and they're wildly different and really crazy uh, diets. You know, most species of bats have to eat their weight in food every single night, and there's some bats that only eat insects, and there's some bats that only drink nectar from fruit. So it'd be like, as I said in the story, it'd be like a human living on 800 pounds of hamburgers a day or 75 liters of orange juice. And somehow they, they don't have any kind of problem with that. So I could go on and on. The really fascinating properties of bats and this company has developed a way to, um, to tap into that. And they're pretty confident that they're going to be able to turn that into, into drug targets. Their first target, they said, is going to be involved with chronic inflammation. All right. Thanks for that, Steve. I, I certainly enjoyed reading that one as well. Companies attracting quite a bit of attention, a uh, recent cell article as well. And uh, Steve, you touch on that in your story. All right. Thanks, folks, for joining me today. And, and thanks to you out there for tuning in. Our friends at Kendall Square Orchestra provide the music for BioCentury this week. The group connects science and technology professionals and other members of the greater Boston community to collaborate, innovate, and inspire through music while supporting causes related to healthcare and education. And don't forget to go to bioequityeurope.com to check out the preliminary agenda for our upcoming European conference. It's in May, it's in Dublin. What better place to talk biotech? We'll catch you next week.